Turn with me this morning to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. If you remember some weeks ago, we read from this chapter, at least the first 12 verses, and we preached a message on verse 12. And the theme of that was our eyes are upon thee. Now, while I was reading this chapter, there was another message that came, and I'm going to attempt to preach that this morning. And in fact, there's a third message in this portion, and we may look at that in a following Lord's Day. But 2 Chronicles chapter 20, let's read the Word of God. It says in verse 1, It came to pass after this also that the children of Moab, the children of Ammon, and with them other besides the Ammonites, came against Jehoshaphat to battle. Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, There cometh a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea on this side Syria, and behold, they be in Hazon Tamar, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And said, O Lord God of our fathers, art thou not God in heaven? And rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thine hand is there not power and might, so that none is able to withstand thee? Are not thou our God, who drivest out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel? And gavest it to the seed of Abraham, thy friend, forever. And they dwelt therein, and have built thee a sanctuary therein, for thy name's saying, If, when evil cometh upon us, as the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we stand before this house, and in thy presence, for thy name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our affliction then thou wilt hear and help. And now behold, the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom thou wouldest not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and destroyed them not. Behold, I say, how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession, which thou hast given us to inherit. O our God, Wilt thou not judge there? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. Then upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, the son of Jeiel, the son of Mataniah, 
a Levite of the sons of Asaph, came the Spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation. And he said, Hearken ye, all Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go ye down against them. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziph, and ye shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. Ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you. O Judah and Jerusalem, fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshipping the Lord. And the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a loud voice on high. And they rose up early in the morning and went forth into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God. So shall ye be established. Believe his prophets. So shall ye prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord, and that they should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army, and to say, praise the Lord, for his mercy endureth forever. And when they had begun to sing and to praise the Lord, set ambushments against the children of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, which were come against Judah, and they were smitten. For the children of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir utterly to slay and defeat them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, help, everyone helped to destroy another. And when Judah came toward the watchtower in the wilderness, they looked and the multitude, and behold, they were dead bodies fallen to the earth, and none escaped. We'll end the reading there at verse 24, and we pray the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now, my text this morning is taken from Second Chronicles chapter 20, and it's the last few words of verse 15 for the battle is not yours, but God's. And my theme today is entitled, A Word Worth Remembering. For the battle is not yours, but God's. You see, Second Chronicles chapter 20 records that this was a day of great crisis in the land of Judah. King Jehoshaphat is on the throne and according to chapter 20, verse 2, he is facing a massive army 
One and a half days march from Jerusalem. Three nations have conspired together, comprising of the Ammonite, the Edomite, and the Moabite. They've entered into a pact together to come into the land of Judah. And they come in with this purpose, to slaughter as many Jews in the land as they can. To drive out them as the inhabitants of the land, to take their homes, to take over their property and their farms and their businesses, and to take Jerusalem for themselves. This was a very dark day indeed. This was a day of danger. This was a day of great despair. And once Jehoshaphat is informed of this great enemy, one and a half days within striking distance of Jerusalem, we read about his reaction. Look at verse 3. And Jehoshaphat feared. Jehoshaphat sensed and saw the real danger. That this threat was real. Put yourself in Jehoshaphat's shoes. You've just heard news of a great army assembling at En Gedi on the west coast of the Dead Sea. His fear was real. His fear was real. He, he, he saw it. He, he, he sensed it. However, he, he didn't wilt under such fear. He didn't just feel sorry for himself. He didn't feed in his fear to render him helpless and useless and hold up his hands and cry, surrender. No, we are told that he set himself to seek the Lord. Do you see that there in the verse 3? Jehoshaphat was not a perfect man. He was not a sinless man. He made many mistakes. He was guilty of errors of judgment. We could lay sins and shortcomings at his door, but for all his sins and shortcomings, he was a man who was ready to pray in a time of crisis. The crisis drove him to his knees. He did feel weak. He felt insignificant, but he also felt the need of the Lord. There's a lesson for us. May we in our fear, when we face trials and troubles, when we face the wrath of the enemy, May we set our face to seek the Lord with a deep sense of purpose and need. Jehoshaphat called a fast. The whole of Judah likewise followed suit in verse 4. Think of the whole congregation coming together, thousands of men and women and children. Face is full of fear. They're fasting, abstaining from food for a spiritual purpose. Prayer is being offered. And here is the king taking the lead, offering the prayer. And you can read about the prayer from verses 6 through to 12. What a prayer it is. It's a powerful prayer. And it's climaxed in verse 12. But, O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do. But our eyes are upon thee. He confessed that we have no might against this great company. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. Here's the king confessing. We can't defeat this enemy in our own strength and power. Here's the king confessing. We have no strategy, no, no, no military strategy, battle plan of our own. But we're looking to the Lord to help. We're looking to the Lord to intervene. Jehoshaphat was saying, we need God's help. We need divine intervention. We need God to be gracious and merciful. And what did the Lord do? The Lord stirred up a prophet by the name of Jehaziel, by the Spirit of the Lord, and gave him a word for the king. And you can read that word from verses 15 
to 17. That was a word for all Judah. That was a word for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That, that was a word for the king. That was a word for the people in the towns and the villages. A word of great encouragement. What was the word about? It was a word about divine intervention. It was a word about the Lord's help. It was a word of cheer. A, a, a word of comfort. And that word is summarized for us in the immortalized words. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Now, folks, you've no need me to remind you that we live in a dark day, a day of great despair, a day of danger facing the church of Jesus Christ. Is this not a dark day politically? Confusion? Is this not a dark day morally? Think of the immorality and the iniquity of today. Is this not a, a dark day religiously? Think of apostasy that's rife in many of the so-called evangelical fundamental churches. Is this not a, a dark day economically? Is this not also a dark day spiritually? It is. And we think of the darkness facing the church of Christ. Especially as that church is targeted by the devil and all the minions of hell and the world and the flesh that's against us. And I have a question. What do we do in this dark day? Fear? Yes. The fears are real. Just as real and as raw as Jehoshaphat's day. What do we do? Yes, it's proper that we set ourselves to seek the Lord. It's proper that we fast and we get asked the question, do we assemble before God with prayer and fasting and cry out for his help and divine intervention? But there's something else I want to ask. Do we have a word from God for our souls? You see, when I read this chapter, I asked this to myself, is there a word from God in this passage for me, Lord? Is that your mindset this morning? A word from God for me? Is that why you've come to the house of God? And when I read these words, for the battle is not yours but God's, I said to myself, I wrote it down, there's a word worth remembering. Not only is our eyes on the Lord, but here's a word worth remembering. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Now, now think of this this morning. Three things. Think of the conflict that he feared. Notice the word here, the battle. As I've already told you, verse 3, it says, And Jehoshaphat feared. His fear was real. And it was raw. Then he prayed, set himself to seek God, and he fasted. Why? Now I can give you many reasons this morning. He knew that he needed divine intervention and help. Maybe he felt guilty about past sins and was fearful about judgment and the wrath of God that was coming on him for those sins. But I believe. He also realized and knew the purpose of the enemy. Why had the enemy come one and a half days march outside Jerusalem? Look at verse 11. It says, Behold, I say, 
how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession which thou hast given us to inherit. Notice the word inherit. Think of the words, to cast us out of thy possession. Now remember, God had covenant to give the land of Canaan to the children of Israel. and That's never been revoked. They have got the title deeds to that land. A land of milk and honey. A land of rich blessing. A place where the Lord would set his name. A place where the temple would be built. A place where God's people could meet. A place where the people could enjoy and experience the blessing of the Lord in their own soul. And this was a conspiracy. A real concentrated effort to drive Judah out of the land. As he says here, to cast us out of thy possession. Imagine if they had succeeded. What would the children of Judah have lost? It was suggested to me by way of an idea from the Reverend Wagner who preached a message on this called um, Divine Deliverance in Dark Days or Divine Direction for Dark Days that had lost the spirit of praise. See, Judah's defeat would have put an end to the songs of Zion. Does the enemy not hate the singing and praise of God's people? Does the enemy not hate true singing from the heart? See, see, the enemy wants to rob you of your song. The song of the soul set free. The song of redemption. The, the song about the blood sacrifice. Why? Because the enemy of your soul wants to be praised himself. And, and you know, is that not the focus of some modern hymns today? Not all, but some. It's all about me. It's all about myself. It's all about personal self-esteem and confidence. Focusing on my need and my misery and my woes and my trials and my troubles. But let's bear in mind that they're forgetting something. That true worship is offered to the Lord. True worship is all about our maker. Not about me. It's about him as the true and the living God. It's about him as king of heaven. It's about him who's the creator of the world. You see, worship is all about ascribing the worth that's due to God's name alone. The Bible says holy and reverent is his name. It's about magnifying and praising the Lord. Wasn't it the psalmist that said in Psalm 48 and in the verse 1, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God in the mountain of his holiness. And we've read in the context here in verse 21 of Second Chronicles, and that, and that should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army. Do, do you see the context here? You see, we live in a day when there's thousands of joyous, joyless believers in the house of God. Because the focus for too long when it comes to worship is me. 
my situation, my circumstances, my need, myself. Many of God's people are full of fear and despair and they're weighed down with sadness and weighed down with sorrow. And they can't see the joy of the Lord. The Bible tells us the joy of the Lord is thy strength. Philippians 4 and 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And we should fill our hearts and minds with Jehovah. And if we fill our hearts and minds with who and what God is and what he's like and what he's done, then we'll fill our hearts and minds with joy. If you think of joy, J, the first letter stands for Jehovah. Jehovah first. You see, I believe that our God wants us to be happy. I believe that our God wants us to be full of joy. I believe he's put a desire for happiness in our hearts. The Bible says happy is the people whose God is the Lord. He wants us to delight ourselves in him. The question is, do we? You see, the devil's attacking the church. And one of the things that he does as he attacks the church is to get the church to lose the spirit of praise. And there's many sad believers. Believers who are bruised and hurting. Believers who are losing sleep. And they've been deprived of so much because they've forgotten that the joy of the Lord is thy strength. Another reason that the enemy had come was so that they would lose the priesthood of God. I want you to think of the priests at the altar. What was their job? To daily offer the blood sacrifice to Jehovah. The children of Israel were to learn you don't and can't approach God without blood. And the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament was to teach them about the coming of the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. But this man, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. You see, it was an object lesson. The necessity of the blood atonement. And remember that in the Garden of Eden, it was the power of the shed blood of the Lamb that turned away the wrath of God from our first parents, Adam and Eve. And the devil knows something of the power of the blood of the Lamb. So the devil wants to take away the focus from the blood atonement today. The ministry in the church is under attack. And part of the focus of that attack is to undermine the necessity of the blood atonement. In Princeton University, I had the privilege of being there at least on two occasions. It was the great Archibald Alexander who used to say to the students that went to him privately for advice. And this was his advice to them, young man. Make much of the blood. You see, the blood is God's remedy for sin. It's God's remedy for guilt. When God applies the blood, it's on that ground that forgiveness is received. And the devil's aim is to keep people's minds and hearts away from thinking about the blood atonement. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. 
and that the devil can destroy the doctrine of the blood atonement. He, he's like scoring a, a goal against the church. What about losing the spirit of preaching? You think of the land of Judah with no prophets, no preachers of the word, not a person to teach and preach the word of God. We could ask the question today, where are the faithful men of God in our day and generation? Where's the Willie Mullins? Where's the Dr. Paisley's? Where's the Pastor McConnell's? See, we could ask the question, where is the Lord God of Elijah? Well, he, he is where he always is. He's on the throne of the universe. But we could ask another question. Where are the Elijahs of God? Has preaching today not been reduced to 10 or 15 minutes? You, you listen to some of the things that are preached on the radio. Is it like Paul's advice to Timothy, preach the word? Is it a, a, an expository ministry? We could ask the question today, where's the appetite for the word of God? Where, where's the people that are packing into the house of God asking the question, is there any word from God? See, it was the late Dr. Paisley that said that sermonettes produce Christianettes. Where are the men? Faithful men of God. Men clothed with the spirit of God. Men who preach from the heart to the heart. Men of prayer. Men of passion. Men, men, men of tears. Men who are not in the pulpit for money. Men who preach with the fear and the reverence of God. Whose preaching is not a duty but a delight. We don't need more lectures. We don't need historians or orators or comedians. We need a race of preachers. We need the Lord to raise up heralds that will stand like Jehaziel that we've read about and cry, thus and thus saith the Lord. Isn't that something that's missing today? It's a darkness that's coming against the church. The devil is trying to cast out the true preaching of the word of God. Have we not also lost the spirit of prayer? Is the devil's aim not to keep saints of their knees? Could we not talk about prayerless Christians, which is like a misnomer? Is the prayer meeting today not the most poorly attended meeting of the church? All of us preachers included, we say we're too busy, we're here, there, with this to do and that to do. Days can go past, weeks go past, and there's little or no prayer. Is that why that preaching seems powerless? Is that why the work doesn't seem to be progressing the way it is? Jehoshaphat feared, but Jehoshaphat also set himself to seek the Lord. And could we not, like David, give ourselves to prayer? We all struggle in the prayer closet. I confess that I do. We all struggle in relation to corporate prayer. 
But we need to be honest. We need to go to the Lord. We need to confess. We need to ask the Lord, help us, Lord. Lord, teach us to pray. Give us the spirit of grace and supplication. Have we not also lost the spirit of purity? Do you know the devil hates true holiness? True sanctification? Do you know that the devil hates true likeness to the Lord Jesus Christ? Is that not what a Christian is? If I could use the term, a little Christ on earth. And yet we seem to have lost the witness and lost that testimony before the Lord. Maybe here is the very place where the war has been lost. The devil, I believe, spares no effort to drive out a likeness to Christ. That's in our homes, in our marriages, in our jobs, in our society. And he uses all means. Television, Hollywood movies, the magazines, the profanity of the Lord's name. You see, the devil is working and warring to cast out the praise and the joy of the Lord from our hearts. He, he, he's working to destroy the necessity of the blood atonement. He's working to destroy the preaching ministry from the pulpit. Thus and thus saith the Lord. And there's little trembling at the word. And he's, he, he's working and warring to, to destroy the spirit of prayer. And he's working and warring to destroy the purity among God's people. And I point out this morning this, that it was Robert Murray McShane that said, it is likeness to Jesus Christ that God uses the most. And I want to tell you this morning, the devil is out to deprive us of all our inheritance in Christ. It's the work of the enemy. And that's why he's come to cast us out of thy profession. And, and oh, that we can see that because that's what Jehoshaphat feared. That was one of the reasons that he set his face to seek God in prayer. That was one of the reasons why he fasted. The honor and the glory of God and the souls of the people were uppermost in his mind. That was the conflict that he feared. And I asked this morning, is that the conflict you fear? Because that's what the enemy's doing in our day and generation. I want you to think very quickly and secondly, the confidence that he found. If, if you look at our text, it says, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Jehoshaphat got his eyes on the sovereign of the battle. See, Jehoshaphat displayed great courage in setting himself to seek the Lord. I believe he made the right call, asking help of the Lord and divine intervention. He humbled himself before God. He honestly confessed his need. He knew that he couldn't face the foe alone. He knew he was no match. And what was the best thing that he could do was to pray and cry to his God. And regardless of his own personal failure, and he had, was guilty of personal failures. Remember, he, he helped the ungodly man Ahab and was rebuked for it. But despite that sin and that failure, 
He knew that the best thing he could do was pray. And as he prayed, he got his eyes on the sovereign of the battle. Jehaziel told him, the battle is not yours, but God's. And if you look with me at verse 6, just as a contrast, how did he start off his prayer? He said, O Lord God of our fathers. Notice the word Lord there, it's in capital letters. The God of the covenant, Jehovah. O Lord God of our fathers, art thou not God in heaven? And rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thine hand is there not power and might, so that none is able to withstand thee? See, that's to do with the sovereignty of God. There's the sovereign of the battle. And there was Jehoshaphat in this private prayer. And this private prayer was answered because all Judah then came together and there was a day of national prayer and a crying unto God. Did you know that in May 1940, our armed forces were in the shores of France. Many believed it was an end of the British army, that that the cause had been fought and lost. Thousands, tens of thousands at Dunkirk were awaiting eventual death. The churches in Britain called for a national day of prayer and humiliation in, I think it was April of 1940. The archbishop, by the way, opposed it. King was told things are desperate during the month of May. And on May 26, 1940, a day of prayer was called. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Now let me tell you something. Just before that day of prayer took place, do you think of thousands of our troops in the beaches of Dunkirk and other places in the shorelines of France? On the 24th of May, Hitler ordered his German army to halt. Why? No, no one knows. No one can give an answer. I can. I believe God was at work. I believe God was intervening and controlling the situation. On May the 26th, when the order was given for the evacuation of Dunkirk, every vessel and every craft that was seaworthy crossed the English Channel, and the aim was to rescue as many as possible. Now, now you think of that. And and the amazing thing is, is that Hitler's army didn't move in. Why? Because God was sovereign. And Jehoshaphat recognized the sovereignty of God. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. He is the almighty. He is all powerful. He's all seeing. He's all knowing. He didn't rely on his own wisdom, his own pride. He didn't trust himself or his army. He, He turned to the Lord. And I can I say this morning in an hour of crisis, go to God. Go to the throne of grace. Yes, there's going to be a battle. But it's his battle. It was not their battle. It was God's. And isn't it so easy to forget that? Even in this warfare, the spiritual warfare with the devil, it's not ours personally as individuals or a congregation or denomination. We we should never be jealous 
or envious if the Lord works there and works in another place and saves in tens and saves in hundreds. Let's place our work back into the Lord's hands and say, Lord, this is your work. Lord, we're here for your glory. That's the only reason we exist. We're here for the honor of your name. And we can't fight the enemy in our strength and power, but we fight in your name. You're the great commander. You're the man of war. The battle's yours, Lord. Notice also, there's a setting in the battle. If you look at the text, it says, look with me at verse 16, Tomorrow, go ye down against them. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziph, and ye shall find them at the end of the brook, before the wilderness of Jeruel. Ye shall not need to fight in this battle, set yourselves. Now, now what does that mean? That means set the battle in order. That means have boots on the ground. That means put the military on the field. Let the enemy see you, that you're ready for war. Notice there's a standing in the battle. He says here in the text, Stand ye still. They're to stand. Not to hide, not to run, not to fear. They've been told twice in this text of Scripture, be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude. Why? For the battle is not yours but the Lord's. And you're to stand. Let the enemy see you. Let the enemy know who you are. Nail your colors to the mask and say, we're the Lord's. Notice there's a stilling in the battle. It says, stand ye still. It was as if Jehaziel was telling them, watch what God is going to do. In fact, he told them there, and see the salvation of the Lord with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. It might be better saying, a seeing in the battle. You're going to see a display of the mighty power of God. Do you believe in the power of God? Remember, Jehoshaphat said to the people, Believe in the Lord your God, so shall you be established. Believe his prophets, and ye shall prosper. Do you believe in the power of the word of God this morning? Do you believe in the power of the work of God? That it's for God's glory and honor, and God's name we exist. Do you believe in the power of the will of God? The Lord is a son and shield to his people. The Lord is their defender. There's a battle in Northern Ireland raging for the hearts and minds of the people. The enemy is at work. We, we hear and see what the enemy is doing. But let's remember this spiritual battle. This is the Lord's battle. There was also a spoiling in this battle. Do you know what happened in verse 23, verse 24? The three nations, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Moabites, they ended up attacking each other. They ended up destroying each other. Why? Distrust? Fear? We don't know. But, but they seem to turn against each other, suspicious of one another. Why? Because God was at work. And by verse 24, we read when the children of Israel actually got down to where the battle was going to be fought, they discovered the place already full of dead bodies. 
None had escaped. Isn't that what we read in verse 24? And when Judah came toward the watchtower in the wilderness, they looked unto the multitude, and behold, they were dead bodies fallen to the earth, and none escaped. That was the confidence that he found. A sovereign in the battle. They were to stand ready for warfare. They were to see and be still the salvation of the Lord. And they had the joy of seeing the spoils of the enemy. Notice lastly the comfort that was fruitful. See, Jehoshaphat received a great blessing. What was he told? The Lord will be with you. Verse 17. Isn't that tremendous? This land is going to have rejoicing. The land was going to have rest. God grants a great blessing to Judah. If the land is the rest in the Lord, then what a rest that will be. The land was going to have revival. They were going to see what God could do. The land was not careless any longer. They were now careful. They had a new zeal. They had set themselves to seek God. They were seeing God at work. The land was going to have riches. Three days they spent gathering the spoils of the enemy. See, God financed his work using the spoils of the enemy. Doesn't God always finance his work? Material riches. The greatest riches, of course, is spiritual riches. That's the greatest blessing to have. Treasure laid up in light of eternity. Are you here this morning and you're discouraged? You're here this morning and you're downcast. You're facing some sort of conflict, some sort of battle. Something's happening in your life. Let me just encourage you. Remember, it's the Lord's. And you can see his sovereign hand at work. And you can stand and you can see the salvation of God work out. Even to the spoiling of the enemy. And the bringing to naught. Even the mindset of the enemy of your souls. May the Lord take these few thoughts this morning. And bless them to you.